Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 9. Ephesians chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to start a series still in the thought of listen to Jesus, but I want this series to, to go in a different direction as far as focus. We're going to focus more on eschatology in this series, which is the study of the end. And so this series is going to be called, Is This the End? And uh, I'm sure that a lot of you are looking around at the events that are taking place in the world and wondering what in the not heaven is going on right now. And uh, I, I look at it too, and, and some of it causes a little bit of anxiety to swell up in me. And, and uh, I go back to the scriptures and I'm reminded of God's promise that in this world you will have trouble, but don't be afraid. Why? For I have overcome the world, Jesus said to us. So I want us to look at these events, and I want us to look at the Bible, not reading from the book of Revelation backwards and putting our own ideas and concepts on the symbolism of the book of Revelation or some of the symbolism in Jesus' teaching. Because if we're not careful, we'll, we'll put symbolism on it that the original audience of these <laughs> books, and because they didn't really get these messages all the time as books, specifically what we're going to talk about today in Matthew 23 and 24 was given to them through Jesus. The book came later. Um, so they were living their life based off of preached words, messages, letters that were written to them. They didn't have the Bible assembled the way we have it assembled. And so we can't read the Bible backwards and put our thoughts on what we think John was saying about Revelation or else we'll think the four, you know, horsemen in the book of Revelation are Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that's not what the writer meant when he was talking about, <laughs> come on somebody. No, I know who it is. It's Elon Musk. It's Bill Gates. It's Tom Cruise. I knew it. I know it. It's Tom Cruise. I knew he was weird when he jumped up on the thing. And, you know, we'll read backwards into it. You know, I'm sure the original audience of this book didn't think about microchips implanted in their hands and silly stuff like that. Well, all right. Well, let's, let's read this book in its context. So, so let me give you a couple of scriptures. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. I want this to be a foundational verse for us as we approach these things in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 through 18 says, I pray out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I believe that the foundation of our faith is the love of God. I believe that every Christian at the root of who you are, it is the love of God. At the root of your doctrine, at the root of your faith, is the love of God. Anything not built on the foundation of the love of God is a false and unsecure foundation. Because if your faith doesn't begin rooted and grounded in love, then your faith won't end rooted and grounded in love. And so no wonder so many people have such a crazy idea about 
the future because they don't have a faith that's rooted and grounded in love. So they don't see an end that is rooted and grounded in love. They are afraid of the future when my future isn't fear. My future is love. First John tells me that perfect love actually casts out all fear, but the person who remains in fear has some sort of expected judgment in their future. I don't have an expected judgment in my future as a child of God. All that's waiting for me is the trumpet to sound and the dead in Christ will rise and those that are alive and remain will be called up to meet him in the air. I have a savior who is coming back to take me to be with him forever. And so there are some things that we see in the Bible that have not happened yet, but I want to I be very clear on the stuff that's very clear. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that is... That seems vague and very hard to understand, especially when it comes to the book of Revelation. It's interesting, too, that the book of Revelation is really the only book that we see that's written written with this promise that blessed is the one who reads these words and understands them. It's a really interesting thought. But it's one of the most misunderstood books in the entire Bible, and so it's one of the most avoided books in the entire Bible. And I don't want you to avoid it because it's not scary. It's actually redemptive in its nature. And I'm excited to share some stuff with you all. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 23 today and 24. I want to read Hebrews 9 before I jump into there. Hebrews chapter 9. I want to read these verses to you. I'm going to start in verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, what the writer of Hebrews is saying there is that What was going on in the Old Testament in the temple and the sacrifice and the sacrificial system was inferior, um, not just because it was something that God really never wanted. When you look at the Old Testament, God actually told David, "I, I really don't even want a temple. I don't live in a house made with hands. But David was so adamant about it, he let David eventually do it with his money through his son Solomon. But God has always been sure about this, that he doesn't need a house to dwell in. Well, that's interesting. The kind of house that you think he needs to dwell in. And so no wonder in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, it didn't destroy Christianity because we don't, we don't have a temple that is made with hands. We have become the temple of the Holy Ghost. And when the temple was destroyed, it was the mark of a new age, a new era, the end of an age, the end of the old covenant age and the beginning of the new covenant age. And so what Jesus is doing for us, the writer of Hebrews says he is bringing about not just earthly temples, but a heavenly temple that has better sacrifices than these. For Christ, he says, verse 24, did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. That was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face the judgment So Christ, they don't die and then wander around, you know, soulless bodies. They die and face judgment. Verse 28 says, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. 
And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin or really even deal with sin. Sin has been dealt with on the cross. But when he comes for us that second time who are alive and those who are in the grave, he is coming what? To bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. When Jesus appears, he's not coming to bear sin again. He's already dealt with sin. He said on the cross, that, that is finished. And it culminated in the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. That, was, that age is done. When he comes again, he is not coming to bear sin. He is coming, the Bible says, to bring salvation. How many of you in the room are waiting for that day when Jesus returns to bring the salvation, come on, that he has promised us? I want you to go to Matthew 23 and 24. And I, I think this is so important because the word eschatology, it's a, it's, a, it's a big fancy word, but it just means the study of the end. And I think it's important because have you ever heard the, the uh, phrase, it's not how you drive, it's how you arrive? You ever heard that? What they're talking about is they're talking about golf, okay? And they're talking about how in golf you can hit this wonderful, beautiful drive, but if you don't know how to operate around the greens... It doesn't matter how far you hit the ball, it's going to affect your score in a negative way if you don't know how to finish the hole. And this is very true. About 10 years ago, I was, I was hitting the ball as far as I had ever hit it in my life. I was playing with this guy who was 75 years old. I was hitting it 100 yards past this guy. He beat me by 14 strokes. Because he would get on the green, he would chip, and it'd be real close. And if he had a putt within 10 feet, it was money. He was going to make it. And I learned my lesson that day. That that wasn't just a phrase I heard. That was a phrase that applied to my life at that moment. It is not how you drive. It is how you arrive. Have you ever heard? It's uh, it's not really how you start. It's how you finish. Heard that? That's really applicable to where we're at right now. Because a lot of us are going to start stuff. We're not going to finish. We have every intention to finish. But we're going to start a lot of stuff this year. We don't plan to finish. You're going to get a gym membership you're not going to use. You're going to buy a treadmill and you promised everybody you were going to use it. And by November, it's maybe not even November. It might not even make it to March before it becomes a place you hang clothes and you put items that you're ready to get rid of. Or you move it to a utility garage or you sell it in a yard sale. The finish of something is very important. The finish of something is very important. And the reason this is important in my mind is because when you read... The chapter of Matthew, the chapters of Matthew twenty-three and twenty-four, throughout history, cults have actually used these chapters to establish their belief and doctrine. You got an entire group, you got an entire religion based on the fact that they believe that they are the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter Day Saints, and it's based solely. And mostly, I'm sorry, mostly out of Matthew 23 and 24. Cults use these words out of context. Atheists use these words to discredit the predictions of Jesus in Matthew 23 and 24. We'll see all of this stuff Jesus said was going to happen in that generation before those people died. He said they'd see it with their own eyes. Still hasn't happened. Here we are 2,000 years later, and none of those things have happened. We're still waiting on those things to happen. So Jesus must have been a false prophet if he missed all of that. How could your Messiah be real and he got all of that wrong? So this gives birth to false prophecies also about the end of the world and political events. You know, you got 
people reading the book of Revelation and somehow they're, they're trying to fit current day people into there. I know who it is. It's Putin. I know who it is. It's, I know what the mark of the beast is. It's a chip in your hand. No, it's a chip in your head. No, it's, it's AI. No, it's, it's this. It's that. It's, and the, the Jewish people would be looking at us like, how are you so narcissistic to believe that these things w- that were said would happen to us are about you? Okay. It's wild how we read the Bible. And the first person we inject into the Bible is us. We're David, right? And our marriage is our giant. <laughs> our boss is our giant. <laughs> David is not a story about you. David is a story about David. (laughs) Now, we can apply principles to ourselves, but the story of David doesn't point to us. The story of David actually points to a better David who would defeat our Goliath's sin. That's what, that's what, that's, Jesus is who the Bible's about. And what happens when we don't, when we read the Bible backwards, We develop a faith that is more concerned with escaping the world, being raptured out of the world, escaping some eternal fire pit that God has created for the wicked, that our our ideas and mythological ideas even of what hell looks like, the concept of hell, instead of preaching the kingdom of God. So when Christians take Matthew 23 and 24 out of context, they actually, when they take it out of context and apply it to the end of the world, the end of the cosmos, the last day, the resurrection of the dead, when they try to apply it to that time, we actually arm unbelievers with arguments against the trustworthiness of Scripture and the words of Jesus. And the New Testament becomes this convoluted collection of books that are contradicting one another. And I've told you this before. If you, if you see a contradiction in the Bible, I believe it is an, it is an issue of, of uh, translation or context. The translators messed up and didn't define the words correctly or the context. People take a verse and they pull it out of context and they try to apply it to something it doesn't even apply to. You know, when people go, they're like in the gym, like lifting weights, like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. (laughs) Anybody remember like the power teams back in the 80s and 90s? They would come and rip phone books in half in church. This was a wild time in church. It was actually the apocalypse. It was really weird. I'm just kidding. But they would just break bricks and all this stuff. And they they would say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you know that verse is actually talking about giving? It's not talking about lifting weights. So I believe you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Pay for the expansion of this sanctuary and build a road so we can get y'all out of here quicker. So in the next 19 minutes, let's, let's explain a chapter that people have been arguing about for centuries. Okay, Matthew chapter 23. This won't be the first and only, this won't be the last sermon. This is the first one, but it won't be the only sermon here. Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to jump into verse 13. I'm not going to read every verse through the end of Matthew 23. I will read most of the verses in Matthew 24 today. 
I'll try to get through the two first predictions of Jesus. Uh, definitely won't be able to get to all of them. We'll get to, to more of them. Uh, next week, I really encourage you to come. I'm not going to be preaching. We have a guest with us next week. One of my best friends in the world. His name's Judah Smith. He's a pastor out in Los Angeles, California. He's going to be here. And uh, I really, really want you to be here. So make sure you're here next week. And then the week after, we'll, we'll jump back into this. So Matthew 23, 13, listen to what it says. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven on people's faces. And you yourselves do not enter. Nor will you let those who enter, who are trying to enter, enter. So verse 13 says, woe to you, who? Teachers of the law. And Pharisees, verse 13, or I'm sorry, verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides. Again, he's still talking to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Verse 23, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Verse 25, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. So when you read Matthew 23 and you're like, but he's talking to me. 2,000 years later, Johnson City, Tennessee, when Jesus is saying these things, you think he's referring to you? That's ludicrous. And not the rapper, ludicrous. That's wild. I don't know how much more clear he has to be. Seven times the Bible says here in Matthew 23, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 27, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Verse 29, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Verse 33 says, you, snakes, you, brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? The word hell there is not the concept of hell that you and I have or we've been taught. Most of our concepts of hell come from Greek mythology anyway. Dante's Inferno. You ever heard of that? There's levels of hell and different settings for the fire in hell. And, and, and most of even our thoughts about eternity and immortality don't come from the Bible. They're a mixture of Plato's and Socrates. And this was happening even in the day of Jesus. It was called Hellenism. It was where the Jews were intermixing their religion with mythology and the Greeks and the Romans. And they had come up with all kinds of crazy ideas. And so when Paul comes on the scene, he says stuff like this. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Greek, I became a Greek in order to win some. Right? I became all things to all men in order to reach them. So in other words, he's talking to them in their language. So when you read the New Testament, very often you are seeing concepts that are not actually Christian concepts, God concepts, things that come from God or Jehovah. They are actually concepts of men, and the disciples are using those concepts to explain something about God. For instance, if I were to say to you, so-and-so sleeps with the fishes... Most of you in the room, if you've seen The Godfather or gangster movies, you know what I'm talking about. When I say he sleeps with the fishes, what does that mean? He dead. So Peter actually uses in his, one of his writings in 2 Peter, I believe, he actually uses the word Tartarus there. This is a Greek mythological word that he uses to describe. He's not saying that there is a Tartarus in the kingdom of God. He's using a Greek mythological word to describe a place where the angels are suffering. They are in bondage until the day that they are judged by God. But it's not the actual Greek mythological place Tartarus where the Titans are. 
He's using it to try to describe to them something that is familiar to them so they can understand a concept about God. It's why the Bible says that Jesus only taught them in parables. Matthew says that. says that he taught them only in parables. Without a parable, the Bible says he would not talk to them. So when Jesus is giving an example, for instance, in Luke 16, when he's talking about the rich man who dies and goes to Hades and the poor man, Lazarus, who dies and goes to Abraham's bosom, he is not giving you a lesson on what the afterlife looks like. He's using the understanding of the audience to explain something about life. And in that whole context, he's talking about wealth. He's trying to tell the rich people of the high class political and religious system your money will not help you in the afterlife he's not trying to describe after you die some of y'all if you're poor because there's no mention of the gospel in Luke 16 so if Luke 16 is literal then it means if you're poor you go to Abraham's bosom if you're rich you go to hell that's what it means there's no gospel preached it's all about the class of the person So it's not a picture of the afterlife. It's Jesus describing to these people who were obsessed with money that your money will not help you in the afterlife. Oh, man, this is good news. So let me help you a little bit with Matthew 23. Again, seven times he says, woe to you. Not Nathan Livingston on the front row at Calvary Church in 2023. Woe to you. Who? Scribes, Pharisees. Teachers of the law, Pharisees. Watch what he says. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Nathan didn't do anything to those prophets. Sorry, Nate. He's innocent. He didn't kill the prophets that were sent to Jerusalem. He didn't participate in the judgment and the trial and execution of Jesus. Jesus is literally talking to this group of people who would be responsible for the rejection of the Messiah. Come on, somebody. How do you know that, Robbie? Read the next verse. Truly, I tell you, all of this will come upon this generation. Everywhere in the New Testament, when Jesus says generation, he's not talking about a future generation. He is talking about the current generation. He says, who should I compare this generation to? This generation is like. In every story that Jesus is telling, and he says this generation, he's talking about that generation. There's no way on earth those people are sitting and listening to that message and going, we good, because he's talking about Nathan 2,023 years from now. He says, and then to make it clear, he goes, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who, sent, who are sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as hens gather a chick under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In that context, 
The conversation of Matthew 24 happens. Jesus on the Mount of Olives talking to the disciples about the end of the age. The end of the age that Jesus is talking about is not the end of time. It's not the end of the cosmos. It's not the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is talking about the end of the old covenant age. Let me prove it to you a few different ways. Verse 1, Jesus says this. The Bible says Jesus left the temple and walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. So look at the context here. Jesus is walking away out of the temple and the disciples call his attention to the buildings. And Jesus says this. He says, do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. If you go to Jerusalem today, there isn't a temple in Jerusalem. There's a part of a wall called the Wailing Wall that the Jews will pray at, but the temple is gone. The sacrifices are done. The Jews have been scattered all over the earth. And up until 1948, they weren't even a nation. Think about this for a second, just because when it comes to your faith, you don't have to take your brain out of your head to be a Christian. (laughs) Faith doesn't mean we're dumb and we're just out here relying on hope and hope and love, man. No, the Bible tells us to be wise as serpents. Innocent as doves, wise as serpents. We need to know what we're talking about because... For too often, people have used these words against us to call into question the authority and legitimacy of Jesus. So watch this, verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. I will deceive and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and to be put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And then he goes into the abomination of desolation. He talks about all of these different things that would happen. So verse, look at verse 15. He says, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader of Daniel understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Look at that. Not those who are in Johnson City flee to Irwin. Come on. Those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back and get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. There are Christian people who will not have children because they believe that this verse is going to happen in their lifetime. I have people who come to me all the time. Tell me, you know, Pastor Rob, I would love to start a family and have kids, but I just don't see the point of it. The world's just going to go through tribulation. I don't want my kids to go through that kind of tribulation. Bad eschatology hurts people. Bad teaching about the end of the world, the end of the ages, it hurts people. So Jesus says, How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive. If possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Here he is in the inner room. Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east and is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there is... There are vultures that will gather. Immediately after the stress of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. And the heavenly bodies will be shaken. This is literally a quote from Isaiah 19. I'm sorry, Isaiah 13. There's another reference in here to Isaiah 19. And it's this one. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. When they see the Son of Man coming down on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. doesn't look like the resurrection of the dead to me. That looks like the judgment of God coming. And all the earth trembles. Hmm. I want to suggest to you that this has already happened. And I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to leave this place and go home and do like the Bereans in the New Testament and study it out for yourself and come to your own conclusions because nobody's going to go to heaven based on what they believe about Revelation. You're going to go to heaven with what you do with Jesus and his sacrifice. That's what's going to, that's going to determine eternal life for us. So this is something that is a not, not an essential, but I think it's very important because I think it is affecting us in a negative way when we read the Bible backwards to the front. Let me tell you why I believe much of this is already, if not all of it, has already happened. I believe that when Jesus says, I am coming, he sends Rome. Historically, it's a fact that in 70 AD, Rome destroyed, completely destroyed the temple, the city, and over a million and a half Jews were killed. And the reason that it's hard for us to see that as a part of history is because we are so obsessed. We are prisoners of the moment. It's the same reason my son thinks that LeBron James is the best basketball player that's ever lived. When clearly it's Michael Jordan. Like, what are we talking about? But the reason he believes it's LeBron James is because he's a prisoner of the moment. He never watched Michael Jordan. He's watched him on YouTube. Bad, you know, if you go watch old tapes... You can't even see people on the TV. How did we watch TV before high definition? 
But we could argue about that in this room. There's probably somebody, when I say Michael Jordan, you're like, well, you never saw Larry Bird or you never saw Bill Russell. It's like when kids talk to me about the music these days, I'm like, this music is terrible. I'm a child of the 90s, the early 2000s. This is the best music of all time. And then somebody else in the crowd is like, are you kidding me? It's not the 70s or it's not the 90s, it's the 80s. Come on, man, Billy, <laughs> Billy Jean. I mean, Michael Jackson, we're talking about. And then somebody else would be like, no, it's the 70s. Because you're a prisoner of the moment. You're locked in your moment, so... It's funny that we read the Bible backwards and we insert ourselves into every story in the Bible. And this isn't even about us. This is woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This will happen in your generation. It's wild, isn't it? Verse 30. Verse 33, so Jesus says, now learn this from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you, watch this, verse 34, truly I tell you, Matthew 24, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Let me give you another verse, Matthew chapter 10, verse 23. This isn't the only time Jesus talks like this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 23. He says to the disciples, verse 22, I'll start there. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm till the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I just would want to suggest to you that the Son of Man coming in judgment is not the same thing as the Son of Man coming at the resurrection of the dead. I think these are two different events. And I think the son of man coming in judgment has already happened and it happened in AD 70. So when you look at Israel and you're like, oh no, war, rumor of war. Oh no, another bomb went off. Oh no. And you think that somehow there's a tribulation gonna happen and you need to flee from town. And you need to sell all your possessions. The end is coming. How many false prophets have said the end is this date and missed it? How many people have been disillusioned by false prophets adding to the scripture that God said there's a curse on you if you add to this? So for all the prophets who keep adding stuff that the book of Revelation doesn't even talk about, stop watching their YouTube videos. Simply, if they said Trump was going to win and he lost, stop watching they're you, but he's really still a prep. Stop watching them. You are missing the point of it all. You are trapped in what the New Testament described as fairy tales and fables. I'm not talking about conspiracies. I'm talking about fairy tales and fables. Some of the conspiracies we thought about COVID were actually right. It did actually start in a lab. Some of that stuff is right. But what I'm trying to tell you about the end of the day, stop letting people lead you astray into all kinds of weirdness about chips and Marx and Trump and Biden. When this stuff in Matthew 24 has already happened, Robbie, how do you know that? Let me just give you a couple verses. We're going to continue to talk about this. Don't think that this is the end. I'm not going to leave you here. I'm not going to abandon you on these streets. I'm going to take you all the way through this if you come back. 
Matthew 23. Hey, if you don't come back, we won't have to build that building and I can go to two services and I can live beyond 70. (laughs) Let me give you just a couple of thoughts. Well, Robbie, what about wars and rumors of war? The reason this prophetic word about wars and rumors of war is so significant is because it happens at a time of peace. For us, there's nothing significant about wars and rumors of wars. That prophecy would be vague at best, irrelevant to us because we are always in a time of war and rumor of war. But in this day, they were experiencing what historians call a Roman peace. Rome was at peace. But what started to happen near AD 70 in the mid middle of the 60s, look at what happens. And this is historical. This is from Tacitus, who was the foremost Roman historian at that time. He said the history in, in AD 69, he says this, the history in which I'm entering is that of a period of rich disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. This is actually a part of Roman history. There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. This is in AD 69, a year before the temple was destroyed. What about earthquakes and famine? You don't have to go very far to find the fulfillment of those. Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 29. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. This happened before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Acts 16 and 25. What about earthquakes? We preach about it all the time. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns and praising God. The prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, he wrote this, moreover at the feast, which we call Pentecost as priests, were going by night into the inner court of the temple as was their custom to perform their sacred ministrations. They said that in in the first place, he said they felt a quaking and heard a great noise. And after that, they heard a sound as a great multitude saying, let us remove hence or let us get out of here. Evidence after evidence from Josephus, from the book of Acts, the persecution of believers. I'm so persecuted. Rob, I would think that when the early church thought about persecution they didn't think about people making fun of them in school they thought about Nero putting them on a stake and burning using their bodies as fuel to light the streets of the city you'll talk about persecution we haven't experienced this kind of persecution there's never been a persecution like this not in our history he said they will arrest you and they will crucify you we don't put people on crosses anymore Peter was put on a cross upside down in AD 69. So when Jesus is saying they're going to arrest you, they're going to persecute you, they're going to hang you on crosses. He's not talking to us, he's talking to them. And you're like, Robbie, why is this so important? This is important because if this happens, there's so much fear that we don't have to have concerning the end. 
All that I'm waiting for is for the Son of God to come back and raise me up from the dead. On the la- like he told Martha and Mary. He came to Martha and Mary and they said, Lazarus is dead. If you would have been here earlier, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, I'm the resurrection. She goes, but I know he's going to rise on the last day, not at the end of the age, the last day. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. There is a last day resurrection where the dead in Christ will rise and those who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet him in the air. That has not happened yet. But God's judgment on Jerusalem, God's judgment on sin, and God's dealing with, the, the, with Satan and the devil, he has finished it on the cross. When he breathed his last breath, he said, it is done. And the culmination of it began in the middle of the 60s and ended in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. And we began a new age with a new covenant in Jesus Christ. And all that's awaiting us is the resurrection. And I'm going to show you more. I'm going to talk to you more about the sign of the Son of Man and the false prophets and all of that stuff. It's all in the scripture. So Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that your word removes fear. It doesn't cause anxiety. It removes anxiety. Thank you for the day we are living in. Thank you for the victory that we have over sin. Thank you that you have the keys of death, Hades, and the grave. You are victorious. Thank you that the glorious salvation of your people what awaits us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.